0: Welcome to one more edition of Politics on Right. I'm Alberto Ulliz, your host. Today we are honored to have Jessalyt Griffin, who formed from custody to casket after her son was murdered in the Harris County Jail over a year ago. The Texas Rangers investigated his murder after the Harris County Medical Examiner's Office ruled his death a homicide. The Sheriff's uh, Office continually lied about the circumstances, once even claimant he might have died from food poisoning. Uh, Then claiming he might have died from a friendly game of slap boxing. Typical, typical, typical. First of all, Jesslet, I want to first, once again, give you my most sincere condolences. I know losing a child is extraordinarily difficult. So um, thank you so kindly for, first of all, uh, talking to me. And secondly, the work that you're doing uh, to make sure this kind of incident doesn't happen again, even as it continues to happen over and over again. So welcome to politics, Lynn Wright.
1: Thank you, thank you so much. I just appreciate the opportunity and Mr. Ruiz just to be able to um, share and get more ears involved with the story and my son's situation is more than a story but I just it's my passion to share the story and to do everything within me as I've organized organization to help others to reduce stories just like mine.
0: Well before we even get started please Egberto when you say Mr. Willis I feel a bit old so yeah <laughs> but anyhow. But uh, seriously, now, before we even get started, tell me a little bit about your son.
1: My son Evan Lee was uh, 31 years old at the time of death, uh, the custodial death there in Harris County Jail. And Evan was a high school graduate, college grad, a uh, working citizen, um, just like everyone else. And he had some unfortunate uh, health issues with uh, mental, mental health that was challenging him, but he defeated it by all means necessary. He still um, in high school, he played football, he received awards in football and he went to uh, college, received many awards and uh, academic. And also after that, he started to work doing something that he liked. Uh, Until his death, he was working four years on his job until his death, um, walking miles in the neighborhood to get back and forth to work because he was not a driver. Um, Evan had a car donated to him because they saw him walking a lot. Um, But at the time of his death, he was just getting everything set up, getting his driver's license and he had his permit and everything and had the call nice and shiny and clean and ready to uh, go. But Evan was a great person. Um, Evan will give you the shirt off his back. And I, I really learned the most about Evan during COVID when he will work, you know, his hours and then come out in the neighborhood and help distribute food to the community and help the seniors in our remote area
0: was uh was evan ever a trouble kid was he ever in trouble with the law or anything like that or was he what what got him involved with the the uh criminal justice system
1: you know evan had a previous uh record of one incident of the same but um it was dismissed um but Evan wasn't a troubled child, uh, if you will. Um, Unfortunately, this particular incident that caused his death, Evan was walking on his day off and he was arrested by Arcola Police in Fort Bend County. And I got a phone call from them. They were asking if he had a probation officer and of course I told him, no, he don't have a probation officer. And the arrest record states that he looked at like a escapee. And he was detained um, and held in Fort Bend County for 10 days and transported to Harris County. Um, my understanding, it was an error in the system, but they were going to fix it from a previous case. And we end up having uh, his life taken in the process of this era that was in Harris County system.
0: So in other words, uh, he had no record to speak of. He had uh, he was arrested because, well, in in his case, I, I hate to say this, but it's it's, it's too often walking while black uh, to somebody looking suspicious. Is that am I am I accurate so far? Uh, that he was picked I, up I, not for doing anything illegal. He was just picked up because of maybe how he looked. Is that he, what it is?
1: Exactly. My son was profiled. And um, again, he did have a prior record, but there, this was nothing that was um, a repetitious record of him, you know, in the past. Having, was it a
0: viol- Was he a violent person or anything of that sort?
1: No, he wasn't. Evan was five, five and a half and would not harm a flea. And uh, of course, protect himself, as I stated in a prior situation that he had with someone at a bus stop. But other than that, Evan was a very normal uh, being, as I stated, trying to work to earn a living.
0: You know, it, it is interesting because I think what you're saying is he's, he's did what, was at, what society have asked all of us to do. Um, before we get further, I don't want to harp on what he, on anything he would have done before because I want to make a, a statement for our audience here. Every adult male, whether they live in Houston, Kingwood, or anywhere else, is at the behest of our criminal justice system. If there's a skirmish, if there's a fight, if there's whatever, it's at the discretion many times of a police officer. If they'll say, "Well, you know, come on, sh- shake yourself off, guys, go to your separate ways, go home," I see that happen a whole lot of times here in Kingwood. People get into little skirmishes. The police officers that want to create a record incident or whatever, go home but with with many of our black children or black boys specifically, the first encounter with a police officer and the audience, I want you to understand this, when it comes to criminality and many other things, many, the way our criminal justice system does, BS in is BS out. If you are, if you go ahead and spend or, or harsher, when you're dealing with one particular group and putting them into the system and not a particular group, one group may seem as if they have behaviors different than the other. So therefore, the reason I'm, I want to get this clear is we speak about a specific incident and what caused a specific incident. Now let's go to um, your, your, your son's incident in for this particular issue so he was arrested not for doing anything illegal but just because of how he looked is that correct
1: that's correct
0: he he went he was he was in jail in arcola then he was transferred to the harris county jail i imagine that's what they do uh in in the county
1: that's correct
0: And what happened and how long did he spend in Harris, the Harris County jail?
1: He was there for uh, probably about 40, 45 to 46 days.
0: Okay, let me back up again, because this is, why was he in jail that long, both the 10 days that he spent in Arcola and Mm -hmm. 40 something days in Harris County, given that there was nothing to No, nothing to pin on him.
1: That's right. Um, He was held, and I made so many phone calls to the courts, so they told me not to call back, that even though it was an error, the judge did not want to admit it was an error for the court system, but he needed to come before the judge. And every time they had a court date planned and scheduled, They are reset it and I continue to reach out to so many different agencies trying to get him released. And it's my understanding that because it was an error he still needed to see a judge for the judge to order him out of incarceration.
0: What kind of error can keep somebody that shouldn't be in jail for 40 days, over 40 days? What was that error?
1: exactly um at that time I did not get any answers all I got was he will be going before the judge and he will be released and I, I, I anticipated just that I was I called so many different agencies I got letters from our congresswoman we got I got, uh, emails. I was struggling and pulling in every direction that I knew how at that particular time trying to get answers and to get him out.
0: Now, uh, prosecutors, I believe, are the ones who have uh, can actually uh, remove somebody out of jail that doesn't belong there if they want to, including put it on a, no, uh, a, a even if even if they let them out they could easily let them out on a recognizant especially if it's an error correct
1: that's very
0: correct um, now uh, which which attorney which uh, district attorney would have been in charge of your son's uh your, your son's case in other words who's responsible is it the Harris County district attorney or
1: yes the Harris County DA Kim Log is responsible for that action. Um, their office is responsible for that. Um, definitely the d a and those right there uh the prosecutors in those courts they're responsible for that
0: so it would it would have simply been a clerical effort to get your son out if anybody had any interest in getting your son out. Is that correct?
1: That's correct.
0: And had you ever approached Kim Ogg or any of her staff, uh, given that it's known that there was some error within the computer that caused them to retain your son, detain your son, uh, did, did they specifically know of your son's incident?
1: Definitely, they were aware. They refused to talk to me. I was not able to speak with them. And that's when I went to my Congress uh persons to get information on it. As we continue to uh strive to get answers on getting him released, you know, time persisted, you know, day after day. As I stated, the courts told me not to call back to the courtroom. Uh, because many times when I call, I think they knew my number on the call ID. And they would pick up and say, yes, Miss Griffin, we don't have any answers and we'll see him in court. And at that time, the judge will sign off and he'll be released. I'm, I am, you know, I, what is it that I
0: don't know here, Miss Griffin? What is it that I'm missing here? A clerical error has occurred. Your son is locked up for over 40 something days and during that 40 something days, you're constantly trying to get a district attorney who knows? There is a clerical error or some sort of error to get your son out, and ultimately he dies in jail. What am I missing here? I mean, to, to I mean, to somebody on the outside, uh, it seems strange that he wouldn't have even been somebody wouldn't have been saying, "Well, since the clerical, even though we need a judge to clear things up, let him out at his own recognizance." Is he is he a violent criminal that should not yes. have been let out?
1: That's right. I, I totally agree with you, um, it, Virgil. Uh, it's, it's very sad that this happened so many times over and over again, where you have someone there, rather it's an error or they have a, you know, character, you know, dysfunction, whatever it may be, you know, there's, you know, people there. You know, 80% of the people there are sitting in that jail, you know, that are, are not guilty of a crime, you know, that they're sitting there for, but they have attorneys fighting for them, you know, their family is fighting for them, and yet you don't get answers, you don't get a response from the, the sheriff department, nor the DA's office, you're not going to get a communication from them at all.
0: They just become
1: a number. They're just a number. And I feel like it's prolonged on purpose um, to hold these people there, you know, just to have a number for the stakeholders, you know, and not uh, respecting the human beings and their rights.
0: Now, um, which was the congressperson that you contacted to help you out during that 40 days?
1: Uh, Congresswoman uh, Sheila Jackson Lee, her office was very, very receptive, and they communicated with me as well as try to reach out to the sheriff department to get answers, and we did not get any. We didn't get any answers.
0: Uh, it seems to me like, again, uh, shouldn't they have contacted, let's say, Kim Og, and Kim Og could simply sign off to get him
1: out of there? Definitely something like that could happen. It could have happened, but it didn't. Um, As I stated, there was no uh, communications between the uh, DA's office. Uh, They did not respond to myself at all. And they did not respond that I'm aware of to Congresswoman's office as well. I'm going to
0: be blunt here. I'm going to be very blunt. It seemed like everybody failed you. Uh, uh, In other words, uh, you you know, the, the, the Congresswoman's office may have been nice to you nice doesn't get somebody released a job gets somebody released the, the 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 kim Ogg's office may have been well we have to wait i think the entire system failed i imagine you hadn't gone to the media with this before maybe you weren't media savvy back then is that correct or am i
1: i i did not go to the media at that particular time but of course the day that i received a phone call that he was uh, in a coma and not able to make a decision for himself at that time, I went to the media and again, I went to a congresswoman as well, and um, they gave emails, as I stated, you know, to help me to try and see him. Um, from the time I got the phone call from the hospital that he was not able to make a decision for himself. That's when I started. Um, from that day to today, uh, January 15th,
0: 2024. Um, this, uh, I, I, I'm i just completely lost for words. Um, you know, I read the story, but have, hearing the story directly from you and, and actually getting the details as far as, well, he was in jail for a clerical error. He was walking and picked up. Uh, I mean, it it seems like one can mess with our liberty too darn easy. And um, I am glad, first of all, that you've created this organization from, uh, uh, from custody to casket. Tell us a little bit about what's your intent going forward? Because it seems to me like we do need advocates that puts the fire under these politicians, because I'm going I'm to put it bluntly, had your son been somebody else, yes, had your Definitely. son been somebody else, this would not have happened, but he was not, as far as they're concerned, he was just a black body in that cell. And, 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 and I think those are things that need to be articulated. In other words, a lot of times we go around the, the panel and we, yeah, that's an injustice, et cetera. But I think he was treated as just that other. And it is very disconcerting because in in your son, I see something that can happen to me or anybody else's son who just doesn't get the attention of those who need to get the attention
1: from. Yes. Um, Egberto, I feel that if my son was a different nationality, I don't feel that you and I would be sitting here in this conversation. Unfortunately, you know, but it's the the world that we live in and we have to accept it, you know, and, and as a Christian, I accept what God allows. And um, I've just taken a step forward and never looking back. And I, establish custody to casket to help so many out there that I have been able to put my hands on and able to help in our criminal justice system. Um, Those, especially the mentally ill, um, trying to uh, get a bill passed that my Congress, I'm sorry, my state representative, Ron Reynolds, uh, authored a bill for me. And we've been trying to push this bill to get it passed. Um, it, it went across the House as we pushed it, but it got jammed up in the Senate um, at the end of our 88 session. Um, but I have pushed and I'm doing everything that I can continuously to help those that are mentally ill. And my vision with this organization is to help those and help rehabilitate the mentally challenged and those that are incarcerated wrongfully because by no means necessary, I feel that every single person, if they're breaking the law, then they should be free. No, that's, that's those, that's not true. You know, I do believe in our penal system, I believe in structure, and I believe in disciplinary actions, But, but I just don't believe in detaining a mental ill person, especially being incarcerated. I think they should be detoured to get help and not be another number to assist with the stockholders and the stakeholders there in the jails. And with this organization, I've been able to help from uh, many of those that have experienced the same as myself. I've been able to assist them with Christian advice, along with other many other sources that I have through this organization.
0: Well, look, um, first of all, um, is there anything else that you would like to say that I may have missed that I may not have asked you that I should have?
1: Well, yes, right now I would like to update. Um, Since my son's murder in the Harris County Jail on March the 18th is when he was found in his cell. And I feel like no one should be found in a cell when you have a staff that's working. And also uh, you didn't ask uh, how he was murdered. He was murdered by officers there in the jail. And that makes it even worse that one of the staff members participated in the beating death of my son evan lee
0: so is, are, do you have the videos of that uh, i imagine as well
1: the video of his death has not been received i am represented by ben crump llc in a major um, class action last lawsuit it's not a class action lawsuit but it's what we call a landmark lawsuit where we have discovered about 21 other families that experienced the same thing that I did and we decided to file on the same day. It's not a class action lawsuit, but it has been established and it has been filed in the Harris County civil courts. And my prayer is that we get some closure because after 750 days I'm facing, I have no closure on what happened to my son. And um, I tried to get an autopsy for over a year. And I was finally able to get an autopsy.
0: They were denying you that ability?
1: I did not get an autopsy at all. Um, I had to um, get an autopsy uh, through someone and an agency. um, They refused as of today harris county jail the sheriff department of harris county have not reached out to my family they have not sent us a postcard and as i have met many other families that has lost their loved ones in this same agency it is a routine action and they it's it's no accountability no kind of respect at all for the families and we understand that accidents happen things happen but once a person is deceased in your custody in your care we should not get a phone call from a hospital or a person from social media trying to find the family to say that you know your loved one is in the bed and not moving, and they just say that he's deceased. You know, this is the answers, and these is this is how people have been contacted, and I think it's very unacceptable and disrespectful to human race that a a, a person is deceased in your care. And you cannot reach out to that family to say at least, at least just to say that they are deceased. You don't have, they don't have to give details. And I understand if there's an uh, investigation going on, but I do feel that they should contact the family in some manner to let them know what has happened. Because if I had not got a phone call from the hospital about my son, I don't know what or when I would have gotten a, a answer or, or if they would have contacted us, you know, about my son being deceased. I, I don't know if Harris County would have reached out to us. And as I reached out to so many to try and see him in the hospital, you know, from a Saturday all the way to a Tuesday, you know, the doctors say, we give up, Miss Griffin. We're going to advocate for you. Come on up and see your son. I got to the building at about 3 p.m. And they let us see him about 7 that evening. But when I approached him, I saw that he was on a ventilator and that was not shared with us. You know, they just say he couldn't make decision for himself. And at that time, I was told that We are going to go ahead and send him to the mark because he's already deemed brain uh, dead. And I had an option to donate his organs and I could see him longer. Um, This is one of the most horrible and horrific uh, feelings that, you know, I have to relive and, you know, live a reality on a daily basis of this. It's very, very sad. But again, as I carry on Evan's name and created this organization and foundation to help others it's what gives me great joy in all of this. And by me choosing to donate organs, we was able to save two lives as well.
0: Jocelyn Griffin, first of all, I am so sorry for your loss. But I am happy that you're not just going to take it. I am happy that you're going to do something about it, and I'm happy that you're encouraging many others to fight against a system that can only be that can only be defined as evil for some. Evil for some. We've been speaking to Jason Griffith, uh, who was formed from custody. The casket, she lost her son to the Harris County uh the Harris County jail. Thank you so kindly for having been on Politics Done Right.
1: Thank you so much for the opportunity to share. Thank you so much. God bless you.
0: Welcome to one more edition of Politics Done Right. My name is Eggberto Willis. Today we are honored to have a very special guest. Dr. Mansood Nerdell is a board certified optometrist. With offices throughout the Denver metro area, in addition uh, to his time spent as a doctor, he's a real estate agent and investor. He currently resides in Castle Pines, Colorado, with his wife and two boys. He's the author of One More Mountain, Fleeing Iran for America. Good afternoon, and thank you so kindly for being here with us at Politics Done Right, Dr. Uh, Nerdell.
2: Well, thank you very much, Egberto. Uh, uh, it's an, an honor to be in your show and uh, uh, the opportunity to uh, uh, talk to you as well as to your listeners. This is a, uh, an honor for me.
0: Well, look, let me let me let me first tell you the book that we want to discuss. And you know, I've always been intrigued with Iran. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I, from the time I went to the University of Texas at Austin, which guess what? It was in, it started in 1980. So that should be quite apropos with you. But anyway, the book uh it, it, interesting. But first of all, tell me a little bit about yourself. Uh not in Iran, but uh right now present day in Colorado. Uh
2: well, uh as I have uh, uh really written the book, I am an immigrant. Uh, uh of course I, re- I came to United States as a refugee in 19 uh 89. And now currently I I live in Colorado, and I operate uh, multiple uh, eye care centers in the uh, Denver metro area. And uh, um, as, a, as you mentioned, I have uh, two kids, two boys. Actually, one is in uh, uh, UT Austin. So oh, you, he's a that's
0: Longhorn.
2: A, that's right. He's a big Longhorn fan. So well, I don't he should think be he happy he any of the games.
0: I know, but here's the deal. We are in the champ, Or rather, we are in the... Uh, in the four what what you call it playoff that's right we why. made it to the playoffs so you're you are going to be coming to texas i guess a few times to check him out does he like it here
2: oh he like uh, he loves it he loves austin and mm-hmm. he's uh uh he had a difficult in the summer there though but the heat this this year was yes. it was hot so brutal yes yes so he is enjoying it so uh and that's what i uh I'm, of course, really in the real estate uh, world, I'm a more investor than really more a real estate agent, but Mm -hmm. I do have a license for just myself, uh, and so to understand the real estate world a little bit better.
0: So you came here and pretty much lived the American dream. You had the, the wherewithal to go ahead and work your butt off to move forward here in America, correct?
2: Yes, I actually came with the $413 in my pocket. And the deposit for my uh well, apartment was two hundred seventy five dollars, so I was short even paying the first month uh, first month the rent. but I am uh, grateful what America has offered to me and many other immigrants. Uh, I am a really perfect example of American dream immigrant life uh, let, let me. I'm not going to try
0: to get political with you on 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 my politics but I just want to say something one of the reasons we do what we do here is exactly that reason I am an immigrant as well I'm an immigrant from Panama Central America and one of the reasons I do what I do is we came here like you did on a, to America as a dream to America as a, a place where you can be successful if you work hard an America where your integrity gets you further so we cannot allow that to go away but let's talk about your book tell me why did you write the book
2: first of all um well it's uh i i'll tell you background in 2007 a very good patient of mine invited us uh to see a, a play that he was going to be at uh so uh and this the play was uh in the Cherry Creek North Theater. And I really, we didn't know what the play was. And my wife and I, we just really went to uh, support Mark. Mm -hmm. And we uh, went there and the play was about the diary of Anne Frank. Mm -hmm. As a Persian, as an Iranian, we have no clue who (laughs) uh, (laughs) uh, Anne Frank is. We really don't. I had never known about it. I had, uh, uh, up to that point. So I am sitting in the uh, play uh, theater, uh, uh, Egberto, and I was really watching my own life in front of my eyes. It was so impactful that I could not sit uh, and uh, watch the play. I walked out. I couldn't control myself. My wife didn't know the depth of the stories. and She panicked. So I'm uh here i forty 45 years old and uh in the hall is uh uh crying his heart out. So ironically, I had the actually exactly at the same age as uh the Frank. I mm-hmm. had my own diary because so it was so real uh that I couldn't take it. Mm-hmm. This was the opening of my uh talking to my friends and my patients. And anytime I told a little bit of a story of my life to my patients and my friends, they said, Oh my God, you have to write this. Finally, in 2009, 19, I had more opportunity. Uh, workload ha- was reduced significantly. And I said, this is the one thing I need to do. So I really wrote the book for uh, my kids, my n- new generation to understand what, life looks like outside this wonderful country that we have here.
0: Now, you started the book with a story and candy. Tell me a little bit about that.
2: Uh, I was four years old when I, uh, my cousin and I, we ran to uh a, a only store that our village had, and we uh, ran to get a candy, and the uh, store owner refused a sell us the candy and i was just confused i was uh how do what would a four years old really can comprehend so i came back to my uh mom and crying and say uh uh his his name was at a red-eyed muhammad actually it was so funny that uh, um uh he had now that i'm in eye care center and i i know what that condition was right <laughs> so uh and my mom uh, said, "Yes, the uh, uh, store owner will sell will not sell goods to our family because we are not Muslims, we are Baháís. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were the only Baháí family in that village, and that's I really faced the discrimination and uh, from age four and knowing my family is different when when I was four years old.
0: The the reason I wanted to start there is because that is inherently something that so many of us have to go through and I, and i think it's it as bad as it is sometimes what it it either it either makes you stronger meaning you're going to have the resolve to overcome what's been happening to you or you're going to succumb to it and it's evident you uh you overcame it time and time again so tell me the story of uh you moving around in iran as a your, you and your family as a person uh, with a different religion than the, the religion that predominated there, and let me tell you how I'd like to kind of address this because you lived through various periods in Iran. Uh, uh, in other words, in Iran we started we can we could we could get started with Mossadegh or we could get started with uh, when when the Shah was in power migrated into to um. 79 when uh, it was taken over how were these different periods well with you not Musadiq, but the other one well how how did this period affect your family not being that religion that that has been a constancy several thousand years in the making
2: so um I actually uh address these uh some of these in my book so I started the book really since when uh, I was four years old mm-hmm. and I described what as a uh young boy I uh really experienced everything that you can think of uh bullying name calling uh stone thrown at and just really there was not even a day that we would I would come home uh, without uh... Uh, being bullied uh, in the uh, the streets, so uh, but that was part of daily life and uh, but in 1978 uh, things changed drastically so our family which was the only Baha'i family in the small village in northwestern part of Iran uh, actually our house uh, was completely destroyed uh, our belongings were looted, uh, uh, and we were forced to leave uh, the village. And while we were given only a uh, eight hours of ultimatum, either tomorrow morning uh, to go to mosque and recant what we believe, and or uh, get out of the village, we chose the latter one. So right you know i was only 14 years old in front of my eyes uh, um, everything was uh, completely destroyed and burned down so we i left we left the village and i grew up basically i spent my teenage years in a uh, larger city called tabriz in northwestern part of iran and this teenage years were uh, tumultuous This was the time that there was a war between Iran and Iraq, as well as the everyday political uh, unrest. And Baha'is were always target during these times. So uh, several Baha'is were executed during that time uh, in Tabriz. Over 200 Baha'is were executed actually in early 1980s in Iran. So I witnessed all of those. Now, interestingly, then the Bahai religion
0: started off in Iran.
2: Yes, yes, Bahai faith is started in 1844 in Iran. Now, uh, you uh,
0: that uh, being of the religion, I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing physically, ethnic, diff- ethnically different than that you have from any Iranian. So uh, you had to be demonstrably, you you had to display your religion in somehow that folks knew you were. Uh, of a different faith correct correct they
2: should sure n- know that yes
0: so it takes a certain amount of fortitude that in in a place where mostly the entire or the vast majority of the country is um is Islam of, of the islam faith muslim that you can actually stand out as a baha'i or christian or whatever other religion that inhabits the the location what do you think gave your family that resolve? Uh, to to keep uh to be able to live that life surrounded as they were
2: well, I think that just the being truth yourself and your heart and your belief. so uh, my family I still have three brothers in Iran, Egberto. Uh, they're still suffering today. it's it hasn't gone away. So what has happened since 1988 it has become systematically, uh backed by the government so that's the prior 1978-79 uh, uh, um yes we were uh in a small village uh i was uh, uh bullied however it wasn't in a larger city population to know okay you are baha'i so but now it has become a systematic persecutions of baha'is by the islamic government uh, no Baha'i even today as a young man can get a higher education than high school. Oh, really? That's right. Every my American friends, they found that they really get dumbfounded to hear it. No Baha'i is still allowed to get a uh, higher education than a high school in Iran. Baha'i's cemeteries and holy places are destroyed. And even the old, you know, the, what is it? The old uh, dead body is going to do to you. So, and these are done and uh, really the by the government. No Baha'i is still, uh, no Baha'i works in a, a government agencies, large corporations, and they are in a tremendous economic pressure. So the. They are all over about 300 now, about 300,000, close to 400,000 Baha'is. All of them are suffering in every aspect of it uh, because of these persecutions today. Now, are you telling me then,
0: uh, Dr. Nodel, that um, Baha'is in in, in in Iran, Baha'is are not doctors, lawyers, or any of these things? They can only be, let's say, a storekeeper or something like that?
2: Unfortunately and sadly, absolutely right. Because if you can't get a
0: professional degree, you can't practice medicine, you can't practice law, you can't practice engineering or any one of those subjects. So if you wanted to be a doctor, you just about had to be a refugee as you were. Tell us a little bit about your path from Iran to refugeedom.
2: Sure. Well, just to give you a little bit, even to uh, confirm what you said, actually, my brother was a second year medical school student. And he was expelled from university and he is still in Iran and he is in a just running a uh, shop mm-hmm. and not every shop, by the way. It, it, they cannot run a shop that has it has to do with the food or so. restrictions. Just incredible. Right. So um, to answer your question. So I left Iran to pursue a uh, dream of uh, uh, really going becoming an uh, architect. Mm-hmm. uh which i ended up being another an architect and i went to uh i came to uh, milwaukee wisconsin as a refugee as i mentioned it's really nothing in my pocket right um so where, where did you come through you, you started in iran how did you get to wisconsin oh uh, i was in turkey uh for year and a half Mm -hmm. So what the book is all about, because I walked the border of Iran and Turkey in the dead of winter, 13 days walk, when the uh, temperatures were uh, way below zero, snow up to chest. We crossed the uh, frozen rivers and uh, mountains uh, as high as our Rocky Mountains in Colorado, even higher. Wow. uh so and 13 days we walked at the night times and we uh slept at the day times uh so after 13 days which again i detailed every single day uh, fortunately i had all these uh, notes for uh, uh to bring those information yeah. to life so it's after i arrived to turkey uh you have to go to united nations refugee office and register so i was as a refugee in uh, turkey for uh 18 months before coming to united states
0: and then you got went through the immigration at the united states to get get in entrances right. as a refugee into wisconsin right. now um when you said you traveled through those mountains uh at night for 13 days is that a, a known smuggling path, let's say that um, that's used to get people out of Iran who are trying to escape the persecution.
2: Um, uh, there's a ethnic group in that region, Kur- Kurds. Everyone knows uh, these days Kurdistan. Right. Uh, the Kurdistan is the Kurdish people live in the uh, region that share the uh, border between Iran and Turkey and Iraq. Mm-hmm. So they really know that the region well. They uh, they actually intermarry from the one country to another country. So the border doesn't mean anything to them. Right. So we had uh, uh, a guide, uh, we guided or we hired these uh, smugglers or Kurdish smugglers to guide us. But it is so dangerous, uh, Egberto, that very very few. Iranians uh will take that path. It's a super dangerous path. So there are other Baha'is have escaped from Iran. The majority of have uh, taken the route to Pakistan, which mm-hmm. is m- much less dangerous. Now uh when you made that route, that um journey, did you do it
0: with, with relatives or did you do it pretty much I'm getting the hell out of here?
2: Uh no, two other friends. Uh-huh. uh huh uh, two uh, friends that one is in now in Australia and the other one uh was in Canada but unfortunately we lost him.
0: Okay, sorry so. to hear. Sorry to hear about that. Now it's interesting because one of the reasons that um after I, I you know Tom kind of told me uh, Tim told me about you um that immigrant story is powerful especially in these times where xenophobia is uh, going through the roof and I I tell you. Um a lot of a lot of people don't understand the tribulations that folks go through to come to the United States or other uh, countries. Some of them uh, uh, seem to believe like uh, there's really much of a humane choice not to do it. And I think anybody who can walk across a mountain walk across mountains on zero degrees. Uh, <laughs> they've earned their right to live anywhere. Well,
2: oh, uh, thank you. I think the uh, my view on this, frankly, my story probably is not any, uh, I am lucky one that I was able to write this story, Egberto. Right. I, I am very, very sure there are much uh, more deeper uh, stories than mine. The immigrants, they really, uh, what I might view is bring a different, fa- uh, uh, different light to our fabric of our society. We contribute to this society, uh, and I I'm perfect example of this. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm actually honored to say that uh, in the past twenty five years, I had uh, em- employed as high as eighty six uh, staff in the Metro Denver area, so. Uh, it's a gift this country has offered to us, and I am uh, very blessed to be a part of this.
0: Well, of course you're blessed to be a part of it. I'm blessed to be a part of uh, of this country. We are blessed to be immigrants. Are blessed to be here, and and those who are former immigrants as well are blessed to be here. Absolutely. So what I what I try to mention, and with your story, why I why it it endears me to it, is again uh it, it's not only that you've employed a whole lot of people is that you've you you have made the fabric of this country like every immigrant has made the fabric of this country what it is because of who we are is yeah. why we can be as powerful
2: as we are absent that we're nothing i 100% agree i i think the other thing that i i have to say no one really uh gets up and leaves uh, his or her country because we we just want to, okay? Right. There are certain circumstances that tr- forces us to take this really dangerous route. I mean, right. I, I I didn't uh, just get up and say, okay, I'm just going to walk on for teen, 13 days in the dangerous mountains. It was actually, I knew... Uh, uh, several months before that it was 19 years old uh, and three other uh, Baha'is were perished in that mountains mm-hmm. but you do it sometimes you just don't have a choice and or you see a choice future better on the other side of the mountain at least you take that risk I took that risk and then I succeeded and unfortunately there were people some did not succeed, and that's that's how the immigration is. Mm-hmm. Immigration is all about taking uh, uh, risks of the for better future on the other side. Well, the people who settled this country, they took risks, and
0: uh, as well, didn't they? Absolutely. And, and everybody who has who's sitting on this land took some risks. Those who lost this land, who were originally here. Took risks. Okay. I mean, one of the things that I I, I try to put out there to uh, because uh, right now we are going through a period of xenophobia in in this country, and I what I try to make people know using my program uh, quite often is that first of all, uh, it's uh, it is great to have you here in this country. Uh, it is great to have all the immigrants in this country, but let's also note that externalities, including some created by our country, yours truly, the United States of America, are directly responsible for a lot of the people transitioning to this, uh, to this land. So I think um, t- t- your story and the story of many other immigrants who could tell a different story than your story would give the mosaic that people need to see that, in effect, we should be looking at immigration as a problem but we should be embracing immigration, not only because it's a net positive for the country, but just because it's the right thing to do.
2: A hundred percent. I think we we need to, I'm pretty sure you know all these statistics and the United States uh, uh, really 4.4% uh, 4. 4 uh, per, of the world's population is, live in the United States. Yeah. We consume 18% of the world's resources. Yes, we have to rethink, okay, uh, of our uh, consumerism, we have to think, so it's, America is a land of opportunity, and if we want to have a better world, we need to re-examine our behavior, frankly.
0: And Uh, and, uh, the the fact, uh, you know, math is, as you well know, math is absolute. If 4% of the people or taking 18% of the resources. And then you ask why immigrants are coming over here. Well, there's a shortage of resources. So math is absolute. We have to be, we have to be cognizant of that. And one of the things uh, uh, Mansoud is that too many people, they just hear the top lines and they don't understand the history of the world. And they don't understand the complicity of what we do in the world and your story And the story of immigrants over and over are there to tell just that look i i i I enjoyed speaking to you but before we go i need to ask you a few things one thing most important question is what would you have liked me to ask you that i didn't ask you
2: um i think you asked everything and uh only thing that i would uh uh mention how this someone can get get a hold of this book. <laughs> oh, wow, we're gonna we're
0: gonna talk about that. but I just want to know if uh, within the meat of the book, is there something that you want to tell the audience before we go ahead and tell them how they can find the book?
2: Well, uh, I think it'd be addressed. again, the it's really the book is about the uh, human resili- resiliency and uh, uh, shared uh, faith and how uh, I like my readers and people know. How the, what the Baha'is are going through in, in, in Iran uh, as a result of that But I appreciate, you know, I think we addressed everything that I thought we were going to talk. Well,
0: look, let me ask you, uh, uh, Dr. Nerdell, how can folks, uh, first of all, all the links to your book is going to be in the accompanying blog for this particular program, but please tell them how they can get your book in other domains.
2: Well, oh, thank you uh, the uh, the website for the book is www.onemoremountain.com. uh the book is available in every format in audiobook uh ebook kindle and it's available through the all the uh, um uh major bookstores as well as the uh, m- or any of the uh, amazon and uh, uh, ma- major bookstores, and you even got it in hard copy too. Yes,
0: <laughs> Ab- absolutely. So, well, look. Um, first of all, Doctor Mansour, the author of "One More Mountain: Fleeing Iran for uh, Fleeing Iran from or for America." Let me repeat that: "One More Mountain: Fleeing Iran for America." Thank you so kindly for having been on Politics then Right.
2: Thank you very much. It was an honor, and it was an honor to be here and uh, uh, to talk to your listeners. Thank you very much.